The story of life usually begins at birth, but here we are going to start at the end. Well, actually, after the end. What do we mean? We want to start by looking at historical figures' legacies. How does society remember a person? And how does that memory shape our understanding of the past, and perhaps, more importantly, the present? I'm Justina. And I'm Jamie. And this is The Stories We Tell, a podcast that analyzes historical figures and how the stories we have told about them shape the larger histories about the creation of nations, the identity of their citizens, and so much more. Ultimately, history is a collection of interpretations made by historians. Here, we will look at how those interpretations created memory, one legacy at a time. Today, we are going to talk about Elizabeth Cady Stanton. What do you know about Elizabeth Cady Stanton? Let's see, that she was a racist. Oh my gosh, that's not where I was thinking you were going. (laughs) You just took the punchline away from me. So sorry. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I'm going to give you the details behind her racism. Okay. Yes. Let me pretend like you didn't say that. This is what I typically get. She was friends with Susan B. Anthony. Right. Apparently, Susan B. Anthony is way more taught in elementary, middle, and high schools than Stanton is. Yeah, I think that's fair. They're like, wait, didn't she know Anthony? One of them had one side of that best friend heart necklace, and the other one had the other side. Were they that close? Oh, you just wait. You just wait. There's a detail that I'm going to include at the end here that is going to show their closeness in a way that... Surpasses I didn't know. the necklace. Oh, far surpasses the necklace. Okay, I yeah, look forward. I'm excited. <laughs> they were friends. Moving so, forward, the other thing that people know is that she probably was at Seneca Falls or something. I'm going to tell you more of the narrative that people know around Seneca Falls, but people typically associate with women's right and the fight for suffrage, women's suffrage, with Seneca Falls. Um, eighteen forty-eight. Oh my gosh, you are acing this exam. And the thing is, I am terrible with dates. It's the worst. I I make fun of myself all the time. But I also try to encourage my students. See, history isn't about dates. I'm a professional historian and I am crap at them. But you did get this one really well, 1848. A lot of people know she died before the 19th Amendment was ratified, which gave women the right to vote. But what I have been noticing... Did, wouldn't that have been the case for a lot of the people at Seneca Falls? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Most of them. Given the passage of time and the way that it deteriorates our bodies. Yes. Yes. And the fact that people don't... Speaking live. from personal knowledge. Listen, man, don't even get me started. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. She died before women <laughs> got to vote. Yep. Yes. So I'm, you're right. That's true. I think... Uh, but I think the way the story is frequently told is that Anthony and Stanton never saw the day. Like, it's this real tragedy of this movement that the people we most associate the movement with didn't even see the past. And actually, as a child, so I'll be honest with you, as I wrote a paper on Anthony in eighth grade, and I... You fell into that Anthony 
stand. Oh yeah, I was. I just was going with Anthony. Okay, and I was really into it. I remember. I I think eighth grade was the year that I really cemented my deep love of history and kind of decided, oh, this is going to be my career. Just insane. But guess I followed through. But one of the things that I think was part of that is that I had a really great teacher who I remember I wrote a paper about Anthony and it meant a lot to me that I was writing about a woman who fought for women. And so that is really a narrative that stuck with me around both Anthony and Stanton and something that I would even argue propelled me into become a historian, right? Something that I could tell these stories that were exciting to me and that felt like I was benefited by. This is very <laughs> idealistic of myself or my, or I, I think also optimistic or I, you know, you know, when you're a kid and you think you're That's yourself some slack. you were in the eighth grade, it's fine. I know, but I mean, yes, exactly. So anyway, so that is a story that is, it really stuck with me for many years. And I think that's a story that's been associated with this history of suffrage in the U.S. for many, many, many generations. But what we are now seeing in kind of turns in the ways that the scholarship is looking at these women, and Stanton, I think, is the best example of this because we have the most quotes from her, is that they engaged blatantly with racism, not, you know, not in kind of subtle manners, like very obvious ways as a way to argue that white women should have the right to vote over black men. And to be honest, I think it's, I think a lot of people are kind of sad when they hear these stories, but I actually think it's kind of exciting that we are, we're not shying away from this anymore. And the stories are just so much more nuanced and interesting than simple celebratory narratives that we previously had. And so that's kind of what I want to spend. I'm going to give you kind of a real shell kind of idea around her life, but I'm going to engage a lot with the ways some of the new kind of discussions around her and the ways that she employed racist rhetoric as a means of justifying women's right to vote, particularly in the second half of the 19th century. Um, but not only in the second half, there were, you know, earlier moments, um, even before the ratification of the 15th Amendment. So that's kind of where my story is going to lie today. I want to give some credit to a book that I have been using in a class that I'm teaching on women's history recently that I think is doing a really good job of telling these narratives or, or providing these narratives for us. And not just about Stanton, but about lots of white feminists that existed in the 19th and 20th century. And the book is called The Trouble with White Women, A Counter History of Feminism. And it's by Kayla Schuler. And I'm going to read a bit from it at the very end. So does that sound okay? Shall we start? Let's do it. So Stanton was born in New York, Johnstown, New York in 1815. Um, she's the descendants of Puritans. Her family only had one son. Hey, everyone. Justina here. Editing Justina here, I should say. I just wanted to make a note that I don't think I make it clear that when Elizabeth Caddy Stanton was born, she was Caddy, right? Her family name is Caddy, not Stanton. So my apologies. I think I make it sound like her family are the Stantons when they are the Caddies, and then she will marry a Stanton. Okay, that's all. Thanks so much. Back to your regular scheduled programming. 
who lived into adulthood. So they had many children, but of this time period, many of them died at young ages. They had one son live into adulthood, but he died at 20 before he had any children when he came home from college with an illness and he passed away. This was devastating for Stanton's father, who really, really wanted a son to continue the family legacy. And he did not shy away from showing this devastation to his family. And it's something that really impacted Stanton and her life because her father told her several times that he wished she was a boy. And I think that was a traumatic experience for her because she couldn't do anything about that. She was a highly intelligent person. I think she was very aware of her tremendous intelligence and understood that her womanhood caused limitations. Because she was a woman, she couldn't fully utilize that intelligence, right? There were limitations on that. She couldn't go to traditional college, for example, which I think really, really upset her. But she did attend Emma Willard's seminary, which provided, from what I understand, some of the most excellent education for women at this time period. I want to say one other thing. So, and this actually, I think, is an important part of the story. So, Stanton is an abolitionist. And I'm going to talk about her activism around abolition um, in a minute, but slavery was part of her childhood. So, slavery was abolished in the state of New York in 1799. But the way they abolished it was a gradual emancipation law, which meant that people who owned slaves in 1799 had the capability to maintain those slaves in their homes or working for them for a certain number of years. So you could actually own a slave in New York all the way up until 1827. During Stanton's childhood, three people lived in her home as enslaved people. So slavery was a part of, it was a direct part of her childhood. The interesting things about this is that we see abolitionists are still racist, right? People who are actually fighting for the emancipation of slavery also hold racist beliefs, right? And white supremacist beliefs. With my first comment that Stanton was racist, and then in the back of my mind, I'm like, when is it when is it appropriate to use these terms and when is it not appropriate to use these terms? I think I'm not trying to suggest that we should never use them, but I do worry sometimes that if we use them too much, too frequently, they lose their potency. Oh, that's interesting. I think when I share some of the rhetoric that she used, she was really, really not afraid of, you know, seeming racist, at least, because she's not she's not trying to shy away. She's not being subtle about it. To make the assumption that someone who actively fought for the abolition of slavery, right, the ending of slavery, was an abolitionist, also held the idea that white people are better than black people is really important to understand, right? That we can't assume and that and it also helps us understand that time period, right? In a way that we may not be able to relate to, which is fine, right? Because we are living in a wholly different time period, but it can help us understand at least the thought process and the understanding around concepts of race from that time period that someone who could actively, I mean, giving a lot of their life up to activism around ending slavery also felt like white women are better than black men is interesting. So speaking of abolitionists, She married an abolitionist named Henry Brewster Stanton. Very shortly after their marriage, they traveled to London in 1840 
to attend the World Anti-Slavery Conference. And actually, her husband was a delegate at this conference. So he was really a, a major uh, abolitionist at this time. And through kind of her connection to him was participating in the movement. She continues to kind of grow in this movement. But this moment, I want to talk a little bit about this, this conference in particular, because I think it had a really lasting impact on her understanding around women's status in society. So at this conference, she met other abolitionists from this time period, including Lucretia Mott, who you might know because she also was a suffragist. Um, and was the founder of the Female Anti-Slavery Society in the U.S. These two women are at this conference, and they are required, because they are women participants, uh, to sit away from the main congregation. And despite protests from some of the delegates, including Mott, who was a delegate there, women delegates were not allowed to vote or speak during the conference. Not even speak. Right. And they're delegates, right? They are, they have been designated as people who are knowledgeable on this issue and should have the voting rights and they are not even allowed. So this, not surprisingly, has a huge impact on Stanton, right? She recognizes that even within a movement about ending slavery, right? About a movement to help people who are oppressed, they are oppressing people, right? We know lots of histories of social movements that within them have forms of sexism, but I think the impact on that experience changes how she approaches being an activist, and it almost starts to center her activism on women's rights. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, right? I mean, could you imagine how frustrating that would be? It would be, I mean, yes, we can totally imagine how frustrating that would be. And it's a powerful moment for her life, for sure. So I'm going to move into Seneca Falls. So as you mentioned before, so wisely, Seneca Falls happens in 1848. Um, and this is the story that's often told. Okay. And I actually pulled this quote from history.com. So this is what's typically associated. The Seneca Falls Convention was the first women's right convention in the U.S. I think first being key. Held in July 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, the meeting launched the launched it launched it, the women's suffrage movement, which more than seven decades later ensured women's right to vote. Uh, Lisa Tetral wrote a book called The Myth of Seneca Falls, and some of that really spurred some discussion around the myths that were created around this moment. So some of that being the idea that it's the first women's right convention is ludicrous. <laughs> I mean, it's ludicrous. I mean, women were talking about things that they needed, that they wanted. That when they were allowed to talk, right? Yes, that's fair. Excellent point. But it's definitely not the first. And also that it launched the suffrage movement is also not accurate. The ideas there are important to the ways that the movement was changing, but there are lots of meetings happening around these things and, and these ideas around women's rights that ultimately then lead to this large nationwide movement, but this moment doesn't launch it. So the reason we have this story is because of Stanton and Anthony. So this is so cool. This is a historiography moment that is really interesting. In the 1880s, Stanton and Anthony constructed a six 
volume, six volume book called History of Women's Suffrage. In this book, they situated Seneca Falls as the origins of the suffrage movement. So their six-volume study was a study of third... Wait, hang on. Math, math, math. Yes. Yeah, like they, a few I decades. Mean, a yeah, few decades insane. worth of history. Yeah, it's insane. Six vo- it's more than a volume for each decade of the movement then if, if it started at Seneca Falls. Yes. Self-promotion is important. I mean... No, actually, you're exactly what I was going to say. So I was really talking to my students. I taught this lesson recently to my students. And obvious problems with this, right? They are creating false history, right? By pointing to Seneca Falls as the launching point of the movement. But they're also, in this volume, choosing to not include people that are participating, particularly a Black woman I'm going to talk about in a little bit, a name Frances E.W. Harper. She is at some of these events, and she's not even mentioned in the book. So, of course, these are massive issues. Secondly, though, to be my own, to kind of conflict with my own thoughts here. To be your own devil's advocate. Thank you. That's what I was trying to think of. The idea that they thought we should write this down that we need to have a history about women in the 1880s was revolutionary, right? As we know, as people who study history, women's history programs, women's history was not really being written from an academic perspective until like the 70s and 80s and 90s. 19, not 18. 19, like 100 years later, right? So the idea that they are thinking, This is history that needs to be recorded and documented. Of course, we're going to star ourselves in it, (laughs) but is revolutionary, right? So I think both idea, both discussions around this massive six volume book is important, right? We need to recognize that them acting in this way is, was important and revolutionary while also choosing to tell the story from their purview and choosing to neglect, you know, important people from this movement is also very problematic. And poor, as historians, we know not the way you should accurately write history, right? Poor methodology. Not but using your source material, yeah. Yeah, cherry picking, right? So, and I, okay, so I want to say a couple things too about Seneca Falls that wasn't really included in the original memory around the event that is really important. I think a lot of us think it's all about the women's right to vote. That's not true. (laughs) They were also talking about other issues around women's rights, particularly issues around property, right? Because women always had to be attached to a man, right? It's usually their father or their husbands, right? So widows who were not considered owners of property that their husbands owned could lose all that land could lose all that wealth that's associated with that land and put them in destitute, right? That's a massive issue, right? So they're thinking about property. And actually, men are really concerned about this, too, because they have wives and they don't want their lives to potentially lose all that property if they, in fact, die. So that's something that's really highly discussed at this event. 
I think I had a vision at one point that this event was only populated by women, that women were the only people participating in this. That's absolutely not true. And actually, one of the most famous people at this event was Frederick Douglass. I think I knew that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool, right? So Frederick Douglass is there and he's in high support of women's right to vote. In reflection, as we see Anthony, or I'm sorry, well, Anthony and Stanton's career move forward and the racism grow is a bit of a slap in the face because one of their earliest supporters is one of the most prominent African Americans, maybe the most prominent African Americans during this time period. I would argue probably, yes, the most prominent. I just recently learned he was like one of the most photographed people of the 19th century. Cool. Right? Yeah. So it got a lot wrong about Seneca. And that memory has taken a very, very long time to deconstruct and kind of start to build a more accurate understanding of that event. So as we see, as I just mentioned, her career move forward, we're going to see her use of racist rhetoric kind of rise. So I mentioned at the beginning that we see most of that happening after the Civil War, but we do see it a little before. So I wanted to just give you one example of that. Six years after Seneca, in a speech that she was addressing the New York State Legislature, Stanton compared women's status, particularly talking about issues around property, to a slave on a southern plantation. And she used this frequently. This is obvious, but one of the things that's really important, and Schuler, who wrote The Trouble with White Women, does a great job of pointing out, is that, and this is a quote from her book, this inability to own property was not, of course, the same as being property. So as I mentioned, Stanton totally was an abolitionist, right? She went to that convention in 1840 that I mentioned in London. Um, she even supported some more militant forms of abolition. She supported John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, in fact. So very militant form of abolition. And she and Anthony halted their annual women's convention during the Civil War to support Black emancipation, right? So they're making efforts to support the emancipation of slaves. Historians have shown that Stanton saw her support of the emancipation of slavery as a road to also provide more rights for women, right? So I think she saw both as where the movement was going. There's actually no doubt that a lot of suffragists were thinking that if formerly enslaved people were earned the right to vote, that women would also get the same. Is it that or is it that by demonstrating their ability to be active and be politically savvy and engage in logical forms of debate and rhetoric, they're demonstrating that they should have the right to vote? Because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but right, sexism, misogyny, a lot of those arguments were created or stated that, you know, women were far too emotional, right? That's why we couldn't be responsible for these things and didn't need to be taken seriously and needed to sit down and be quiet because we were too emotional. We lacked logic and reason, the ability to be rational thinking creatures. And you see, I know a lot of women got involved in um, abolition, but also a lot of women that were involved in the abolition movement really begin wading into political activism by writing letters and speaking out against policies of Indian removal. And so I, I just wonder 
you know, is it about we can, if we, these people get the vote, then maybe we'll get the vote. Or is it more of by, we are frequently demonstrating to everyone that we can engage in logical debate and we can demonstrate to everyone that we're rational beings through this kind of political activism. I don't know, because I guess too, their activism was also used against them. So that's a really interesting question. But also a lot of women suffragists were arguing that some of the things that you said at the beginning, right, that they're, they weren't, I guess, saying it in the way that you're saying it, but some of the, like their emotional, their maternalism, their moral center, right? They were more moral than men, right? That was part of the reason that they shouldn't be in politics, right? That, you know, politics is dirty and all of these things, but they're arguing, no, if we are able to vote, we will vote in a more moral way, which will make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Isn't that fascinating? I really like Yeah. That. I mean, and, and abolitionism was framed as a, as a moral cause. So yeah, it all ties together. Yep, exactly. Historians. It was, it was, it was a moral cause. Sorry. I didn't want anybody to think that. Oh, (laughs) I didn't, I didn't assume that you didn't think it was a moral cause. (laughs) Just want to be sure. Just clarification. (laughs) Just for clarification. Yes. So historians have shown that she really did believe that, you know, the road towards emancipation also was a road that led towards more rights for women. And this becomes apparent. When discussions around the 15th Amendment show that it's likely only black men are going to get the right to vote, that black women, white women are not going to be given that right to vote. And this is where we kind of see her ramping up in her racism, because she thinks, well, if I'm, you know, if we're going to get we're all going to get the right to vote, that it's in my best interest to be an abolitionist, be outspoken about African-American rights. But once she recognizes that discussions around women's right to vote are being excluded from the 15th Amendment, we see a real shift. Are you saying that her abolitionism was opportunistic? That's what I'm saying. And I I think, I mean, I shouldn't be so nuanced with that response because I don't know, but I, cause I, I, I have a hard time being able to say, oh, she really didn't want people to be enslaved or that she, she didn't really care about the issue around slavery because I'm certain that, I don't know. I hope that that's not true. Let's put it that way. But I think she saw it as an opportunity in an opportunistic way, right? That it is in my best interest as well as African-Americans best interest to fight for these rights because the way she saw it is that African-American males, particularly previously enslaved African-American males, right, are highly uneducated, right? Because they literally, it was literally against the law. And I'm saying literally in a, and not a, in the appropriate way. Yes. Yeah. It was literally way. against the law to teach an enslaved person to read and write. So of course they were uneducated, right? But this also led to beliefs around scientific racism and this idea that black people are less intelligent than white people, which is completely false as we know, but was deemed scientifically accurate at this time. So in her mind, she thinks, well, if you're going to give an uneducated, unintelligent, and I'm putting quotes up in my, over, you know, we're in a podcast, 
black man the right to vote. Of course, you're going to give me the right to vote. Someone who is highly educated, right? Who comes from a wealthy background, right? All of those things that associated with her status, other than her womanhood, would deem her at a higher, you know, status than a black man, or especially a formerly enslaved black man, right? Or a newly freed black man. So in her mind, she couldn't even imagine this idea that a recently freed black man would have the right to vote and she wouldn't because she deems herself better than them from an intellectual perspective. Sure. And I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert, but that could be different, though, than, you know, she could believe all of those things and be a terrible person in this regard, but also believe that people shouldn't be enslaved. Yeah, I agree. I think she did believe she people shouldn't be enslaved. That's why I, I don't know. I don't have any evidence sitting in front of me saying this, but I do believe that. I think she didn't. But she the activism, with, the activism was opportunistic is what you're saying. I think it yeah. was. I think there's a lot of evidence to show that. So let me give you a couple examples of this. In 1867, she is at a Church of the Pur- a Puritans event. And there she says, and I'm going to read a quote here, quote, with the black man, we have no new element in government, but with the education and elevation of women, we have a power that is to galvanize the Saxon race into a higher and nobler life. And thus, by the law of attraction, to lift all races to a more even platform. So clearly she is, I guess, saying exactly what I was just talking about, right? She sees herself as a more educated, more intelligent person. And that hence, of course, she should have the right to vote vote over a black man, right? Further, Stanton and Anthony, they start to even team up with people that are very well-known white supremacists at this time. Both Stanton and Anthony team up with a shipping magnet and known racist, George Francis Train. So the three of them are traveling around Kansas in support of a women's suffrage referendum. There's also a referendum that's for black male suffrage at this time, but they are specifically promoting women's suffrage referendum. And I I think this is important because when I'm saying women at this point, they're really thinking about white women. They're not really thinking about black women at all or any other form of, you know, any other color. Yeah. Yeah. So train who paid for all of the travel expenses during this kansas campaign um hoped supporting women's suffrage would also support white supremacy so to justify their alliance with train stanton said and this is a quote a gentleman is dressed and manner neither smoking chewing drinking or and this i word i had to look up gormanizing which is like eating like gorging yourself (laughs) Anyway, so in this sense, she's insisting that he's a very civilized man. And therefore, of course, he's a civilized man and supports our cause, right? Kind of tying this idea with their cause and civilized, which is something that we can also think about the ways that black men were being described during this time period was uncivilized, barbaric. We're leading into the myth of the black male rapist during this time period, over-sexualized, right? So they're utilizing some of those stereotypes associated with black men for their benefit. Even I think this justification kind of shows that they understand 
that people are going to question their alliance with Train as someone who is a known white supremacist from this time period. A quick note, the, neither of those referendums passed. They didn't have enough support, but they continued to work with Train. Uh, they used his money to help fund a, a weekly newspaper called The Revolution, which frequently actually featured letters to the editor written by Train. Also, this is a paper in which Stanton shows her racism. So I'm going to give you one example of that here. In the very first issue, she wrote, and this is a quote, the unfortunate and degraded black race, end quote. And she's kind of comparing it to what she sees herself um, had been unfairly elevated above, quote, the refined and intelligent woman of the land, end quote. So we can start to see how she's situating herself in comparison to African-Americans during this time. And all of this is leading up to a very famous moment in women's suffrage history. I shouldn't even say famous. It's quite infamous, to be honest, and it's very contentious. So it's the fourth annual American Equal Rights Association meeting in 1869. This is when I want to talk a bit about Frances E.W. Harper. So she's an African-American, and I definitely want to do an uh, episode on her one day. She's fascinating. She's also someone that was kind of lost to history until fairly recently, but she's a leading Black activist at this time and Black suffragist, very well-educated. She's making her money by doing lectures. Similarly, as uh Frederick Douglass from this time period, but the fact that she's doing this as a woman and making enough money to support herself and her family is truly incredible. She's also talking about issues around property because she becomes a widow um, and loses almost everything in that process. But she's also highly supportive of the 15th Amendment. And at this meeting, she accuses white women of constantly choosing sex over race. And so she's trying to point this out in an effort to say it would be good to give people the right to vote, right? We can continue to fight for, I mean, she's not going to get the right to vote as a Black woman with the ratification of the 15th Amendment. And she's trying to plea with people at this event to say, this is a good thing. It's so contentious that the organization dissolves at the end of the convention and Stanton and Anthony start the National Women's Suffrage Association. Um, which is an association opposing the 15th Amendment. Conversely, Harper, Lucy Stone, who's another younger um, suffragist, and a group of other suffragists form the American Women's Suffrage Association, which is in support of the 15th Amendment. And this is a huge moment because we see the split in this in the suffrage movement over this issue around race, and it lasts for the next two decades. So it's a very kind of lasting, impactful moment in the movement. And it's really spurred on by Stanton, Anthony, and their supporters saying, no, we cannot support an amendment that doesn't also give us the right to vote. And then others like Harper and Stone saying, no, we need to you know, support that they're expanding the right to vote for anyone. And it doesn't mean we're going to stop fighting for ourselves. It just means we need to support this in this moment. Because of this massive rift in the movement, the movement's harmed by it, right? Instead of standing together and continuing with this massive alliance, the, the movement's very harmed by it. Hence, I think, why it takes so long to eventually get the right to vote for women. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because this is 69. They're not getting the right to vote till 1920. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So, I mean, can't know for sure, but perhaps if everybody had continued to work together and you'd had this larger group of, of activists 
their activism could have been more far reaching, arguably. And perhaps if there had been one message, then it would have been more possible yeah, for, I think for so. things to happen sooner. As we move later into Stanton's career, she takes a kind of interesting turn that is also divisive in the movement. So later in her career, she focuses on the rights of individuals as a pathway for women's liberation. And she expressed this commitment to individualism in a very famous speech she gave in 1892 called The Solitude of Self. And this is, I mean, as American historians, we know how America has been really tied to concepts of individualism that's tied to the American dream, right? This idea that you're successful on your own. I think Stanton is kind of utilizing in this moment some of that kind of discussion around individualism as a way to propel women's liberation. This idea upsets other suffragists. It really upsets them. They don't really see the movement going in this way. It makes her even more divisive. And they see it as also like very capitalistic, right? So she's kind of promoting these ideas that are very American, very capitalistic. And it's kind of, in fact, I have in my notes, horrifies other suffragists, right? They're not seeing it as the way they want the movement to go. Well, because these are the power structures that oppress people. Exactly. These are the these are the the hierarchical power structures that have oppressed women and have oppressed other people for generations. And so now so that makes sense why people would be horrified. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to read a little section from actually uh, Schuler's book because I think she does a really good job of analyzing this in a very like concise way that's going to be better than mine. Um, so Solitude of Self represented the culmination of Stanton's lifelong work developing a white feminism that sees people as isolated units in competition with one another. The speech also foreshadows the white feminism that was to develop in the late 20th century. She articulates a cold, combative vision, women fighting their way up the capitalistic ladder, freeing themselves from a primitive task of sitting at the loom. And this is a quote, the loom and spinning wheel. That's a quote from the speech and ascending into their right to, quote, fill the editors and the professor's chairs and plead at the bar of justice, walk the ward of the hospital, and speak from the pulpit of the platform, end quote. In this individualist vision, middle-class women lean into professional ranks of capitalism and white civilization improves as a result. Meanwhile, the women who continue to operate the looms and the wheel and who are tied to the factory floor become acronisms sulking in the shadows. I think what she's doing a good job of showing is it's very classist, pers you know, perspective on the women's movement. It, the, I think another interesting part is she's like not really afraid of being contentious at this point in her career. Stanton. Yes. She's it, so I have another example of how she's not afraid of being contentious. So a few years after she gives a speech, she also publishes an attack on Christianity's suppression of women. And she calls this book the woman's Bible. This also horrifies her contemporaries. Some feminists 100 years later love this text and they like have fun with it. But at the moment, this is not seen as an appropriate way of going about it. And suffragists who are trying to keep their movement legitimate, particularly 
with moral arguments that like you can look to us where the the moral centers of our family and super interesting right she does not care at the end i think she dies before 1920 she dies in 1902 so 18 years before the ratification of the 19th amendment so she never sees that happen and this is the fun detail i finally made it to the fun detail i mentioned at the beginning she is buried with a picture of Susan B. Anthony mounted in her casket. Her husband, no, no, no. Susan B. Anthony is mounted in her casket, showing that their bond is much stronger than even the best friend shattered heart necklaces. <laughs> too, too right. I mean, and, and, and to her commitment to women, right? Or at least to her. I mean, I will say one thing about this is that They had tremendously unique careers. I mean, if nothing else, they were hardcore activists for decades in a time when women weren't doing that. And I think that their commitment to their movement, regardless of if they were doing it right or doing it wrong, is incredible. They worked so hard. And I think that they really leaned on each other. I think that this was, I mean, activism is hard work, right? And so I think having each other, because the there was a funny quip in the book about, you know, she didn't put her husband in there. She put Anthony. And I think, but I think there's something to that, that they needed each other. She needed Anthony more than she needed her husband to survive the hardships and the disappointments associated with the movement and the failures of the movement during her lifetime. Well, and I also wondered too, because her husband was an abolitionist, right? He was a delegate. And so I wondered kind of what his thoughts were on some of her rhetoric. But I I didn't want to ask because I didn't want it to be like, oh, well, what does the man in her life think? Because I I don't mean it that way, but I just... Like in terms of fleshing her out as more of a of a person, right, rather than just public activist persona that she had. But, you know, understanding her more as a person and what her intimate relationships were like, you know, what, you know, given the time period and everything, you know, what what does her family think about all of this? And if her husband and her, you know connected initially because of their shared views on abolitionism or whatever, you know, what sort of what sort of forms did her relationship take on when her rhetoric moved in in this direction? So I'll be honest, I don't have a lot of answers. But one thing I think I do remember reading is that when she's initially kind of leading towards more women's rights rhetoric, I think her husband this was before the end of slavery, was not really that keen on supporting it. That was, you know, seeing the fight for abolition to be more significant. And there's a lot of interpretation, right? I I think there's a lot of justification for that, right? They're trying to free people who are designated as property where she has tremendous rights. You know, she's traveling. She has... She's got a lot of privilege. She's got a... That's a better way of putting it, right? And But I don't know how... I don't know of any instances in which I know that he was outwardly supporting it. And I, I haven't read anything, which makes me think that maybe he wasn't a big component of her activism, which is interesting, too, as someone who was a career activist. So you would think potentially there would be a way for him to contribute, at least with his knowledge around how to run a social movement. But she's I don't... Gotta, she's got to love the fact, though, that he doesn't show up in her story at all. 
I mean, I figure she's probably really satisfied with that. You know what? I don't disagree. And Anthony's <laughs> all over it. And Anthony's everywhere, right? So she chose the right person to put in her in her casket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I actually I don't know. I think I don't know. I think that one of the things that we said earlier, I just think that I appreciate these stories so much because they really do encourage us not to think of historical figures, you know, making them heroes or villains or, you know, it's it's never as simplistic as that. And so there are probably, if we sat down and thought about it, there are probably a lot of activists that had sides, views, opinions that are unpalatable. Yeah, absolutely. Even, I mean, I, even if we can get behind like what the activism was about, what the movement was about, the, you know, some of the goals or whatever, the individuals that make up these movements are flawed. Are human. <laughs> yeah. And therefore flawed. Yeah, so, absolutely. Was was the fight for women's suffrage in the United States a worthy fight, something that needed to be done? Was the worthy actions of people like Stanton and what they did to try to provide the right to vote to women important, meaningful, necessary? Yes. A hundred percent. And, you know, can we also kind of think that she was despicable because of X, Y, Z? Yeah, I think so. A hundred. I think that's a perfect way to end this section. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This is great. Thank you for letting me talk about Stanton. Thank you. In my analysis today, I'm going to veer a bit from Stanton, but please stick with me. I promise it will all make sense in the end. While studying women's history in graduate school, I was introduced to the book Southern Horrors by Crystal Feimster. This incredible book is a dual biography of the African-American activist and anti-lynching crusader Ida B. Wells and white feminist Rebecca Felton. In the post-reconstruction era, Felton used her pro-lynching stance to push her own political career forward. In Southern Horrors, Feimster argues that white women use their white privilege to wield power over black men in their participation in the violent history of lynchings. Feimster's research shows that white women participated in lynchings in an assortment of ways. Some white women pointed out black men, falsely accusing them of rape, Others actually participated in the violent acts associated with lynchings, and still others like Felton used their support of lynchings to further their own career pursuits. This book had a profound impact on my understanding of American women's history, and I really can't say that lightly. I think about this book all the time. I think it was the book I brought up the most in my graduate seminar courses because it just was something that I could not stop thinking about. Okay, I digress. This book challenged the celebratory narratives associated with the feminist movement 
and urge readers like myself to dig deeper into histories I thought I understood. For generations, we celebrated white women activists without reconciling their participation in racist institutions and their use of racist rhetoric and ideology to propel their own cause. More recent women's historical works, some of which I have mentioned in today's episode, have replaced the older narratives with more accurate and complex histories, including a more nuanced look at Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But how did we get those hero-worshipping celebratory narratives in the first place? I think our answer to that question again goes back to Stanton. Earlier, we chatted about Stanton and Anthony's multi-volume history of the suffrage movement. This text was one of the first to document the suffrage movement. But as we discussed, it was not completely accurate because it ignored important suffragists, particularly women of color activists, Instead, it focused on Stanton and Anthony and their contributions to the movement, while also neglecting to discuss white feminist use of racism in their campaign for white women's right to vote. While this book was significant, because historians at the time often completely overlooked the role of women in society, its lasting impact led to decades of false retellings of the suffrage movement. Further, this text demonstrates that the feminist movement created the discipline of women's history. Again, this is important because for centuries, historians had solely focused on white privileged men. Conversely, because the leaders of the movement became the movement's first historians, they controlled the stories we told about it. Hence, for decades, the 1848 meeting at Seneca Falls was considered the starting point of the suffrage movement. But thanks to the excellent work of more recent historians, those narratives are finally changing, and we are gaining a clearer picture of some of our 19th and early 20th century white feminists, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, check out the recommended reading list on our Instagram account. Our handle is stories underscore we underscore tell underscore podcast. Please join us next time to examine another legacy, another memory, and explore the stories we tell.